You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to what I hope will be a pretty regular part of your schedule. My name is Jeff Wall and this is Game Changers Weekly. So uh, uh, you're probably saying to yourself, hey, another pharmacy podcast. Uh, hopefully this is a pharmacy podcast that will, will tick all the boxes that will make it a regular part of, of, of your day because we're going to try and give you up to the minute uh, evidence-based medicine as much as we can. We're going to try and give you uh, uh, experts in the field who will give their opinion as much as we can. Um, and we're also, most important, probably going to give you a, a CE for it. So not only do you learn something, but you also get to, to, to put some stuff in the CE bank. So hopefully this will check, check all the boxes that will make this a regular part of your podcasting schedule. And so for our uh, inaugural um, um, podcast, we thought we would talk today about uh, um, hypercoagulability in COVID-19, which is obviously a very huge subject. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, again, Jeff Wall is my name. Um, I'm a professor of pharmacy practice at Drake University in Des Moines, Iowa. I'm also internal medicine clinical pharmacist at a large uh, tertiary care hospital in Des Moines as well. So I've certainly seen my fair share of COVID patients uh, over the last uh, month or so or six weeks. And uh, I'm following, like everybody else in the world, um, all the latest issues that come out with it. And one of the things that has is, is, is really come to the fore, I think, in the last two or three weeks is, is, is the notion that uh, patients who have severe COVID, and again, we're not talking asymptomatic patients, we're not talking, you know, patients who just had a little sniffle or a cold or something, but, but mostly hospitalized patients uh, uh, with respiratory failure or uh, uh, ARDS seem to have an increased risk of developing clots. And uh, these are not just venous clots like uh, DVTs and PEs, though that's certainly in that in that list, but there's even been reports of strokes and in patients who are receiving continuous dialysis, having the dialysis catheters completely clawed off. So it's 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 been fairly unique and in a world where we are are you know basically using social media to help kind of push us forward in the latest information because of, of the rapidity of, of, of the COVID crisis, uh, more and more uh, people who are dealing with these patients are, are, are seeing this sort of issue. So, uh, so what? That's you know great. Well, I heard this on Twitter. I heard this on Instagram. I mean, that's terrific. But 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 what, what evidence out there suggests that this is really a thing and not just what somebody happened to see? There actually has been a couple of studies now. Um, again, they're none of them are great studies. I think that's a recurring theme in COVID nineteen uh, uh, evidence right now is none of it is good evidence because it just we haven't had time to do decent randomized controlled trials. But there's been a couple of uh, retrospective studies uh, from around the world. One was a study that that uh, came out of China. It was probably the first study that came out looked in this. And and again, these were all patients who were hospitalized with 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 COVID, uh, many of them critically ill, and found that that um, uh, patients who uh, uh, um, people who had higher mortality tended to not be on DVT prophylaxis. So they, you know, a, a very common thing that's done in hospitals uh, in the United States and in, in Western Europe is is most patients are put on some sort of anticoagulant at low doses to prevent DVTs, and they found that, that patients who weren't on that uh, were actually had, had a higher mortality associated with it. So again, it doesn't prove anything. It doesn't prove clots or anything like that, but it was the first kind of signal that, that perhaps there was something going on here. And then um, there's uh, actually been a, a, another study, uh, actually another couple studies that have come from Europe, and one was from the Netherlands, and the, and the other one was from France, so that was actually just, just uh, published a couple of days ago, 
And both of them suggested that even on patients uh, who we are routinely giving low-dose anticoagulation to, so these are people who are getting heparin or Lovenox at low doses to prevent DVTs, that they're finding breakthrough um, um, uh, clots that are occurring. Uh, the latest paper from France uh, that, again, and all this is online, so you can certainly take a look, and we can we can put a lot of the links to this in, in the show notes, I'm sure. Um, but but the, the study from France found that even in patients who are receiving therapeutic anticoagulation, there were a few breakthrough PEs, and again, that's that's very concerning. Uh, the Netherlands paper found the same thing. The Netherlands paper found that 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 uh, in, even in patients who were on you know high dose Lovenox or high dose heparin that they had uh, breakthrough uh, pulmonary emboli. And again, not a lot. And both these studies were, were, were pretty small. None of these studies were thousands of patients, but it is concerning. And so between this kind of empirical you know, uh, observation from, from clinicians in the front lines and these small studies, there's been this uh, emerging concern that, you know, this COVID infection seems to, at least in some people, uh, make them more likely to clot. Now, you know, again, why we're not exactly sure, like so many things with COVID, we're, we're really not exactly sure. Uh, but there is some data that, that some viral infections can uh, lead to an imbalance of immune and non-immune cells that can also lead to an imbalance of pro and anticoagulant states. So, I mean, you know, the pro-inflammatory, everyone's probably read about the, the so-called cytokine storm that can occur in some of these patients that leads to, you know, again, respiratory failure and ARDS. Is it possible that same pro-inflammatory cascade can also lead to a pro-coagulant cascade? Um, and that's certainly possible. Um, uh, we know that that uh, that some viral infections, not just coronavirus, but some other viral infections, uh, can uh, increase uh, things like von Willebrand factor and other uh, tissue factors that just basically make people more likely to clot. So, um, you know, again, this is all kind of guesswork. We're not exactly sure what what, what the causes, but there's, again, been this kind of empiric uh, observation as well as some small, not very well-done studies suggesting that these patients seem to be at increased risk. So then the question is, well, you know, how, how can we, you know, operationalize this? How can we take a look at this? And we'll talk about that after uh, a word from our sponsor talking about uh, uh, some other great educational uh, activities through CEI that will also give you some good knowledge and some good uh, CE as well. Hey, Pharmacy Podcast Nation, are you tired of searching for meaningful CE? CE Impact brings learning to you through a continuing education subscription service. That's right. No more searching. It comes directly to your inbox, and it's really good. Subscribe today at ceimpact.com to receive a hot topic CE course on the first of every month. You'll also receive bonus content and tools to implement your learning. Plus, participate in a live journal club, Continuing Education, on the second Wednesday of every month to keep up on evidence-based information. If you want to keep searching for good CE, you might or might not find it, and you'll waste a lot of time searching. Or you can sign up today to get CE Impact's subscription service and have all the CE you need when you need it. It's that easy. Once again, go to ceimpact.com and sign up for the subscription service. Don't waste another minute. ceimpact.com. 
Let the learning come to you. So welcome back. Um, so now we're going to take a take a second and and talk about how we're operationalizing uh, this information. Now, under normal circumstances, we would probably look to evidence based medicine guidelines, right? So, so what are, what are the big hematology guide uh, uh, organizations saying in their guidance about this? And unfortunately, uh, you know, the the people who are running those organizations have the same uh, deficits that we do in that they don't have a lot of good information. So we've just got to try and kind of do our best. It's interesting to note that that both uh, the uh, American Society of Hematology and their recent guidelines for COVID and the ISTH, uh, International Society for, for Thrombosis and Hemostasis, uh, in their guidelines, and they both have separate guidelines, and we can put links to those in, in, in the show notes, um, have both said that, yes, there's this uh, emerging concern suggesting that these patients are at increased risk of, of clot, but they also say that, that the evidence that suggests that we should be super-duper aggressive in these patients uh, is minimal, and so both sets of guidelines actually do not routinely recommend do any recommend doing anything different than basically what most United States hospitals are already doing, which is to put patients on DBT prophylaxis. So they basically say that unless you're actively bleeding or your platelet count is below 25,000, that you should be put on on DBT prophylaxis, and they actually preferentially recommend anoxaparin um, because of this Chinese study that looked at mostly at anoxaparin. Um, I will tell you that my hospital and almost every hospital I know of has pretty much ignored those guidelines and uh, and have have done have kind of come up with their own homegrown guidelines on on how to how to how to take a look at these patients. Now the problem, of course, is that uh, someone who is COVID positive is going to be put in isolation, so we're not going to have the luxury of doing a lot of imaging on them. So uh, uh, they're they're in isolation. Everyone has to be pretty much gowned up in in, in significant PPE. Uh, uh, and and so in an attempt to not waste a lot of PPE and not expose unnecessary people to this, we can't routinely use the imaging studies we would use in a patient, for example, a duplex scan of, a D, of their legs to look for DVT or a or CT angiography to look for a, for a clot in their lungs. We can't do either one of those in these patients. So what can we do as a stopgap um, until we can do that? And what most hospitals are doing is they're using laboratory markers. And the two big laboratory markers that people are using. The first I think everybody's using is D-dimer. We know, you know, D-dimer is, is, is kind of the uh, ugly stepchild of the, of the coagulation uh, test because it is used very commonly to, to, uh, as, as a marker of, of an activation of the clotting cascade, but it also is very, uh, um, very, uh, 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 not specific. Um, it goes up for all sorts of reasons. And so, you know, the running joke in most hospitals is, is you know, don't get a, a D-dimer unless you're pretty sure the patient has a DVT or PE anyway, because if it comes back positive, you're kind of forced to check for it. Um, it's, it's, a very, it's a very sensitive test, but it's not a very specific test. So it, it's really good at ruling out stuff, but so many things cause the D-dimer to go up that, you're, that a lot of times you're ended up uh, yeah, under normal circumstances, you know, now going down the rabbit hole of, okay, now, I got to get a CT scan of them because of that. So, um, but D-dimer, I think, has gotten a, a new level of 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 a of um, 
of respect among physicians, at least during the COVID crisis, because we are seeing D-dimers, and again, as a marker of the activation of the coagulation system, that are just sky high on these patients, way higher if you read some of the reports of, of physicians in, in New York and Seattle that they've ever seen before. And so we at Methodist, and I think most other hospitals, are using some uh, D-dimer as some sort of, of, of marker for when we should escalate uh, um, anticoagulation levels to the therapeutic range, so not just prophylactically preventing them, but putting them on, on levels like we think they have a clot. Uh, at, in the unity point system, we're using a D-dimer of, of, of 1.5 or greater, and that's based on, a, on a, another paper that came out of China that suggested that, that, uh, that a D-dimer of 1.5 and greater was associated with it with an increased risk of developing uh, pulmonary embolism, but other places are using higher or lower uh, D-dimer levels. So again, you know, we're, everyone's kind of coming up with their kind of homegrown way to look at this, but that's what we've been doing at Unity Point. I think other hospitals are too. So if your D-dimer is greater than 1.5, then we're, we're, we're escalating you to therapeutic Lovenox or, or a, a, um, unfractionated heparin as a continuous infusion. Um, <clears throat> um, the other test to look at is fibrinogen, and again, fibrinogen is, an, uh, is, is another marker of coagulation. So if fibrinogen levels are, are super high, that would actually, that would point you again toward thinking the patient is more likely to clot. So a lot of places are also using fibrinogen in their testing algorithms or their testing decision, decision trees. Uh, we have not done that at Unity Point, but it's certainly reasonable to do that in the hospitals that you're at. So, um, so then, you know, we, we, we will then put them on therapeutic anticoagulation, kind of cross our fingers that they don't have a major bleed. And largely our patients have tolerated this pretty well. We've had a couple of, of minor things like bleeding around the ET tubes or, or, or uh, epistaxis, but we've managed to, to reduce the dose and people have done pretty well there. Um, and then the, the, then the question is, so what do we do? We can't keep them on therapeutic anticoagulation forever. Well, when they get better, and notice I'm saying when, we're going to be optimistic here. So when they get better and, and hopefully their COVID testing becomes negative, at that point, we can go ahead and do the, the uh, imaging that we would normally do just to see, do they in fact have a DVT or PE? If they do, then we obviously would continue therapeutic anticoagulation in them. Um, another issue that is, is, is garnering a lot of attention in the last two weeks has been, um, okay, so I've got a patient who was hospitalized with COVID and is, uh, um, uh, but just didn't, didn't require the ICU, maybe it was just on oxygen on the floor, but is getting better now. We're getting ready, we're getting ready to go home. We've had them on DVT prophylaxis um, uh, with Lovenox or heparin. Uh, should I, uh, as I'm getting ready to discharge them, should I continue um, the prophylaxis as an outpatient for a period of time because of this perceived increased risk. And again, there, there is virtually no data on COVID patients specifically. Um, up till recently, the only drug that was actually FDA approved for extended prophylaxis at home and medically ill patients was Lovenox. That's always a pain because it's injectable and most insurances won't pay for it. It's pretty, pretty expensive. But in the last uh, five years, we've had two of the, the DOACs actually become approved for extended prophylaxis in medical patients, and those are batrixaban and rivaroxaban. So um, um, we at Methodist and Unity Point, and I think a lot of other health systems are looking at, you know, should we be uh, uh, discharging these patients on a week or two or, or even maybe even longer uh, of, of, um, of prophylaxis just to prevent the development of clot as they're getting better uh, fr from their and recovering from their COVID illness. Um, I, so, I, you know, the, the practical upshot, I think, to the community pharmacist listening to me is you may see an uptick in in uh, 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 
uh, discharge prescriptions from patients for one or two weeks of low-dose batrixaban or rivaroxaban. In my world, in, in, in Des Moines, it's certainly going to be rivaroxaban because I, I don't think I've ever seen a single prescription of batrixaban. Um, and uh, uh, it's going to be for one or two weeks, and it's going to be at the lower, I believe it's 10 milligrams a day dose for rivaroxaban. So uh, don't be surprised if you see that. You know that, 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 that the, the issue there is probably, again, probably trying to get prophylaxis for one to two weeks after the, the acute illness. For the community pharmacist, I guess the other questions you're going to be fielding are, you know, so, you know, again, you know, not, a move doesn't happen with COVID that it isn't all over uh, popular media and on the internet. So you're sure you get tons of questions from your patients about, well, hey, I read that these people are really likely to clot. What should I do? And I know that some of my friends in community pharmacy have been asked about, should I take an aspirin a day? Um, again, uh, as it stands now, I'd say the answer is no, because A, we don't know if anything is going to significantly prevent this uh, uh, um, uh, hypercoagulable state, although aspirin may have some small role in preventing venous clots like DVTs and PEs, um, especially in older patients, the, the, the risk probably outweighs the benefit, so I would say probably not. And in younger patients, their overall risk is, is, is so small that, that I, I doubt that, uh, that they, they are at increased risks. Again, most younger patients won't even get ill enough to, to, to be hospitalized with COVID. So I would say if, you have, if you're having patients who are coming to you and saying, hey, you know, I, I saw this on CNN or I saw this on, you know, MSNBC or, you know, whatever popular media they're using, I would say that they don't, people don't have to hurry up and just start taking aspirin for no reason because I don't think it's going to be beneficial and we have no evidence it's going to work and, and the risk can't outweigh the benefit in those patients. So I think that's, that, that's kind of an important piece as well. So, you know, like all things in, in, in COVID, we don't know a lot. Um, we're, we're, we're trying to find out more as we go along. And it's, it's, this, it's this very strange situation where because of the rapidity of the crisis and the severity of the crisis, we're, we're, we're trying to basically, you know, you know learn, how to learn how to fly while building the airplane, you know, and, 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 that's, and that's pretty much what we're doing here. And, and so we, we're, we're, we're trying our best to, to, to come out with the safest way to protect patients. We certainly, uh, uh, it certainly seems that at least from the, the limited evidence that we have of these patients are at higher risk of, of, of clotting. Um, so, you know, I think what this really does for us in the United States is just bring home the fact that most patients who are hospitalized uh, for, for respiratory infections, unless they are at active risk of bleeding or have really low platelets, absolutely should be on DVT prophylaxis. And that was true before the COVID crisis. I mean, and I think most hospitals were pretty good about doing that. Um, but but now I think we need to be even more di diligent about that and making sure that we do so. Uh, I think that that uh, we're, we're, we're trying to protect patients by going up on anticoagulation and, and intensifying the level of anticoagulation in these patients. Uh, we'll see how that works. Um, again, my, my, my limited experience in my hospitals, we have not had a lot of bleeding complications from that, um, but, but um, um, we'll see as, 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 we, as more patients uh, end up getting through this. The current set of guidelines do not endorse routinely therapeutically anticoagulating patients, and I think it's one of the reasons why this is still a little bit controversial, but they, again, do endorse that, that these patients should be on at least uh, DB prophylaxis preferentially with 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 anoxaparin uh, and that community pharmacists who are getting fielding questions about you know how do I protect myself as an outpatient um, um, I think we should probably discourage routine use of aspirin in patients who already aren't taking aspirin for some other indication 
Um, now, I'm sure somebody somewhere is going to do a study looking at that on patients who are taking aspirin versus those who weren't, but we have none of that data at this point in time. So, um, so that's that's kind of that kind of wrap things wrap things up for this issue of, uh, of Game Changers Weekly. I hope you like this format. Um, I hope I don't talk too fast for you, which I know <laughs> students over the years have always complained about, but uh, for, for uh, radio or podcasting, maybe that won't be so bad. Um, please let us know what you think, uh, and also please be sure and go to the CEI website. Uh, you can uh, start uh, getting registered with them, start collecting your CE for these, and take a look at the other outstanding um, uh, uh, educational opportunities they have including the Q Friday uh, clinical questions that I'm also fortunate enough to be a part of. Um, and we, we, we try to give uh, uh, both community pharmacists and hospital pharmacists, again, we, we try to try to, to serve the entire pharmacy community, uh, the latest up-to-minute information on new studies, new guidelines, new drugs, everything you need to know to be, to be a, a good practitioner. Um, those of you who are already tired of my voice, have no fear because we will be having on a routine basis experts uh, who will be discussing the issues we're going to be discussing but it's going to be all things pharmacy. I guarantee you that. So until next time, thanks for listening. Um, as, a, as one of my favorite music artists uh, has in a song, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but uh, today is the most important day of all. So take care. Thanks very much.